Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. Our guest for this episode is David Bailey, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. We're going to talk to David about his forthcoming book with Roman and Littlefield, entitled Protest Movements and Parties of the Left. Now, as we've been arguing on this show for the past few weeks, I think there's no doubt at this stage that the left is back. Perhaps arriving a bit later than in Latin America, the left has recently been making electoral gains both in Europe and in the United States. Yet, I think it is also clear that the left is not really used to having this kind of potential. In its long period of defeat, it's been content to engage in a lot of internal squabbling and become comfortable avoiding the tough question of how to engage ordinary people with its ideas. David Bailey's book is a very interesting intervention in this sense. Without necessarily taking a side between communism or anarchism or socialism, he offers a history of some of the more prominent moments and modes of leftist protest and struggle. What is interesting is that he does this in such an optimistic way, uh, refusing the left's traditional mournful stance on its history and deliberately trying to focus on the things that the movements got right. In this sense, Bailey is out to capture the spark of revolutionary disruption in each of his case studies where the impossible was somehow suddenly made possible. Now, I got to see an advanced copy of the book recently and more than anything, I was pleasantly surprised by Bailey's open-minded stance on the question of left strategy. He finds these sparks of disruption everywhere from the early days of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution to the anarchist movements of the Spanish Civil War and even in post-war parliamentary reformism. The civil rights movements get a look in here. There are chapters on the new left, the history of feminism, the rise of environmentalism. And those interested in more recent history are going to find the last chapters quite interesting, I think, looking at the Occupy movement and perhaps even more interestingly, again, the influence of left populist struggles in Latin America in the context of the Pink Tide on the rise of what Bailey calls left pragmatism in Europe and North America, embodied, of course, in parties like Syriza and the emergence of figures like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. There's a huge amount to talk about in this book. In this episode, uh, we really only get to cover, I think, a small amount of it. But uh, it's certainly worth looking at. If you're a student, I think this is going to be a great primer on, an, on a history of left struggle that's going to be so important for you if you're interested in activism. And if you're a faculty member trying to teach a history of the left, I can't think of a better place to start. So without any further ado, let's pass it over to David Bailey and talk with him about his exciting new book. Welcome to the show, David. I'd like to talk about your forthcoming book, Protest Movements and Parties of the Left, in just a moment. But let's start by introducing you and your academic work for the listeners. I don't know if you would necessarily consider yourself um, a scholar of international relations or of international political economy or maybe something else entirely. But I first encountered your name, I think is some years ago now, in a piece you'd written on the varieties of capitalism debate. Uh, back then, I think you were one of the few voices in either of those disciplines that was trying to think 
about agency um, and resistance. Now it seemed that the big question in the that original debate was about the extent to which we could say that the events of the 2008 financial crisis pointed to a crisis of global capitalist domination. Uh, there was definitely one group of people saying that that was the case. And then on the other hand, we had a party, uh, a number of parties in the debate suggesting that what was actually going on here was a number of coinciding crises of national economies. You entered this debate in a very, with, or with a very different argument, talking <coughs> instead about the primacy of the power of the movements as a way of trying to understand the comparative basis of these various crises. Can you elaborate? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, yeah, thanks for um, for asking me to come and speak to you about this, about the book. And um, thanks for the nice introduction. Um, yeah, the, well, that um, that piece was in a special issue of Capital and Class, which was edited by Ian Bruff and Matthias Evanel. And the the general point of the special issue was really to um, take on in a critical way, some of the insights that the varieties of capitalism literature <clears throat> had made. So in terms of where do I position myself, I guess normally I tend to just say lecture in politics, but I suppose there's more of a focus on political economy in my work if we want to sort of divide politics yeah. up into something like political economy, political participation and the formal sphere of politics and then perhaps security studies. So I guess I would perhaps divide the discipline up that way and then say I'm most interested, I suppose, in the political economy part of it. And the aim of the special issue was really to say um, that there are, there are some, at that point, relatively well uh, acknowledged problems with the varieties of capitalism approach, which have kind of become one of the dominant, uh, or is still, I guess, one of the dominant positions within especially comparative political economy. Yeah. And, and the problems, I think, that, that, that we identified within that special issue in which we all kind of worked around were that this varieties of capitalism debate <clears throat> tends to first of all separate national economies into different types of national capitalist economies and that part of that is that it kind of misses the point that different national economies actually interrelate with each other and form a single global capitalism which we kind of felt or the editors especially kind of felt um is problematic because part of the varieties of capitalism argument, I think, is that you can kind of have a more negotiated, more compromise-based, more kind of nice, tame form of capitalism, <clears throat> and that that's the type that we should be aiming for. And part of the problem, I think, and part of the argument of the special issue was that actually it, it might not be quite so straightforward because if we're talking about complementary elements of a single global capitalism, then it's not possible for uh, the more kind of compromised type forms of capitalism for them all to exist if if they are dependent upon a more kind of liberal, competitive, harsh form of capitalism. So I guess that was that was the kind of um, basis I think for the special issue as a whole. And then what uh, the piece that you're talking about I think is the co-authored by myself and Sari Shibata, and what we basically argued was. Um, that those, those, uh, that critique that I just outlined is a relevant one and one that we kind of shared, but that we thought there might be a step further that we could that we could go. In that, if we say the first step in the argument is the varieties of capitalism, people 
<laughs> who are talking about different ways in which we might um, uh, generate a, 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 a more tame form of capitalism. And then the critique of the special issue, which is saying, well, actually, when we're looking at capitalism, we are looking at a, mo a mode of production that's based on domination and exploitation. And so that's problematic. <clears throat> so it's not necessarily the case that you can get a nice form of uh, domination. And then I think our, the point that we were trying to make was that you, we, can, we can understand domination in a kind of less closed off way. Mm -hmm. And especially we sort of take this argument from Deleuze about adopting what we what he calls a kind of ontology of difference, that when we're trying to describe the world and structures of domination, rather than describe them as complete and closed off entities, rather we should be from a position from a position that's a kind of, we call the kind of ontology of difference. We can understand those. Those, that attempt to create structures of domination as always already uh, problematic. Now, there's always some kind of contestation, there's always some kind of difference, or there's always some something that kind of escapes any attempt to create structures of domination. And that, and that perhaps it's more interesting to think about the elements of escape and the elements of contestation, the elements of difference when we're thinking about those structures rather than thinking about the domination itself. So it's what, what is it that domination can't do? can't achieve rather than what it yeah. can. So from that, <clears throat> then we sort of basically kind of sketched out some examples from the two cases that we're most uh, familiar with, I guess, the UK case and the Japan case, to try to say, well, there are different, there are national differences, but those national differences might be more interesting to understand in terms of national differences of uh, protest or, or, mm -hmm. or that are made by those who are attempted to be subjugated and subordinated. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's a theme that has percolated into um, a lot of your recent work that I've seen at least. Um, you know, that, that power, I suppose, really is, um, to borrow the, the theoretical term, imminent. Um, or another way of saying it, maybe, I suppose, is that the movements have the power but that, of course, doesn't close off the question of, of stra strategy and the, the, the importance of thinking strategy. Uh, you had a piece last year in comparative European, comparative European politics entitled Challenging the Age of Austerity, uh, which you authored with uh, Monica Clua-Lasada, Nikolai Huk, uh, Olatz Ribera Almondoz, I think is how you pronounce that, and Kelly Rogers. Um, and you start by out in this piece sort of acknowledging yep that the european financial crisis has indeed as, as we were just saying a moment ago played out differently in different countries but that despite these differences there's a remarkable degree of consistency in the way that the movements in these yes admittedly differently affected countries have chosen to respond you speak to a kind of emerging or a convergence on the left between horizontal or anarchist oriented tactics and more traditional, vertically integrated forms. And what's emerging now, I think you're saying, is a kind of, uh, and this is just a, a term that's taken from the piece, uh, prag a kind of a pragmatically prefigurative subject of disruption. So I guess I just want to ask, you know, what is, or to what extent is this development being driven uh, by austerity? And if it's a hybrid subject of anarchist and more traditional vertically integrated leftist resistance, um, to what extent has it actually succeeded in disrupting capitalism? Yeah, thanks. 
Yeah, that and that um, article is also part of a, a broader project, which is connected to a book that we've got coming out right. um, in the next couple of months, I think, with uh, Routledge and Wright Global Political Economy Series, which is called Beyond Defeat and Austerity, Disrupt, Disrupting the Critical Political Economy of Neoliberal Europe. And part of the argument that we make there is what you say about this idea of pragmatic prefigurativism or pragmatically prefigurative types of disruption. And um, I think really what we're, what we're trying to argue there is that there's a kind of historical way in which we can understand the emergence of the sort of public square occupations and the other, and there's other types of anti-austerity uh, um, protest movements or mobilizations that we've seen, especially from 2010, 2011 onwards. Mm. And the point that we're trying to make, I think, is that there's a kind of merging between, or what we see is emerging between the kind of pre-2008 kind of, I guess you'd call it the anti-globalization movement, which was, it seemed, it seems there was a kind of consensus within that uh, around this idea of prefiguration, horizontalism, like you say, a kind of heavy influence by kind of anarchist ideas of a sort of DIY sentiment approach to social organization. But there was a sort of rejection of the kind of so-called verticalist movements, political parties, more structured um, forms of uh, uh, political opposition within the anti-globalization movement. But we sort of say that that, to an extent, struggled to really connect with more concrete um, demands of people outside of that anti-globalization movement, so that there was a kind of ideological commitment to tackling globalization through this sort of strategy of prefiguration with an idea that the state and parties were too problematic really to engage with. And that, that, but that then that was able to connect much more with people's everyday demands and needs post 2000 as, um, as the state and, and political parties found it uh, in, increasingly difficult to really offer anything meaningful <clears throat> to uh, voters as a sort of alternative to austerity, especially from 2010 onwards, once the immediate global financial crisis had kind of been stabilized um, through government action, which it's, which largely meant uh, taking on board bad debt by the state and nationalizing the debt. Yes. That then obviously from 2010 onwards to this kind of period, this so-called age of austerity, mm-hmm. in which the aim is really to offload that debt in part through um, uh, through uh, retrenchment of the welfare state. So if that was the general context, we argue, that meant it was difficult for political parties, even of the left, really to offer anything to people who were suffering uh, real and genuine hardship as a result of those austerity measures. And so what we argue really is that with those public square occupations, we see a kind of merging around a prag- more pragmatic goals of simply seeking to deal with those, those problems of hardship. So how to deal with the fact that people have lost their jobs or, or are going to lose their jobs yeah. or, um, or suffering um, loss of the pension or housing problems um, or, or other forms of welfare benefit cutbacks. So that, especially if we think about the, the formal trade unions as well, who perhaps would also look to typically as the institutions that might uh, challenge those those uh, attacks 
that we see those the formal trade unions also offer often not being able to deal with those. So we see basically what we're sort of arguing, I suppose, is that there's a kind of pragmatic merging between these kind of goals that are developed and ideas that are developed within the anti-globalization movement mm. and more concrete uh, demands of, or needs of people post 2008, post 2010. Mm. So that so so partly, I suppose, our point is that this is how we can explain. Um, this <coughs> this kind of um, sort of strange turn that we then see later on, in perhaps from 2015 onwards, whereby those public square occupations then turn back into the formal institutions of, like yeah. today, being the obvious example. Yeah. Because there's a kind of pragmatic pragmatism to it in the first place. We can we can perhaps understand that flexibility in terms of a willingness to then re-enter the institutions through these new political parties. It's a kind so that's kind of, of the idea. The theoretical promiscuity on the part of the movements, right? Yeah, and just yeah, I think so. And also, just partly that, partly an ability to connect with those people who perhaps weren't in, so interested in horizontalism, yeah, yeah, and yeah. The ideas beforehand as well. But um, so, I suppose in that sense, the answer to your question is: it driven by austerity? I guess the answer is yes. That mm -hmm. in the so-called age of austerity, we we argue it was quite. Um, difficult, really, for those kind of more those kind of horizontalist movements to connect with people that were that were outside of them, right. and then with the age of austerity, and with the inability of political parties, the state and trade unions, really to to provide alternatives, that there was a kind of merging of of different types of people with different um, different interests. But then on the question of whether it's successful or not, we just did a, actually, we, I was telling, we, we did um, a, a kind of present, initial presentation of the book to the European Sociological Association just last week in Athens. It was the one of the panels organized by the Critical Political Economy Research Network, CPERN. Right. And I think one of the kind of key questions that came up in that discussion was really the same kind of thing, with our, were they really successful? So I suppose one criticism of the work is that what people could make is that um, we're too optimistic in that we kind of yeah. say, well, here's some protests that happened when when uh, pensions were reduced by 30 percent or when 15 percent of the uh, workforce became unemployed. And by simply saying, here's some protests that happened, we might be sort of too optimistic and really kind of glossing over what were genuinely uh, significant defeats. Right. So, um, so I suppose that was one of the criticisms, um, and I, I think our response as a kind of collective uh, authors on that on these projects, I think our response is partly that uh, it's difficult to know when we have success and when we have failure because sometimes uh, people, when we're talking about disruptive subjectivities, I guess the point is that those are learned and developed through multiple struggles. So it's not necessarily the case that you always win. Uh, uh, or you're always able to have an impact in the particular struggle that you're all involved in at one time. But nevertheless, it's kind of a lesson learning and a skill learning element and a, and a subjectivity developing element to it as well. So that, that, so, that, that, so that that then feeds into later struggles. So I think that's part of our argument. But I think um, I think partly that uh, partly our argument is or the point that we're trying to make is that it's too easy to say, well, you know, at the end of the day. There's still austerity, isn't there? And there's still um, yeah. neoliberal capitalism, yeah. which is kind of true. But it's, there's an element to which I guess the question of whether it's successful or not isn't necessarily uh, <clears throat> the interesting question. 
perhaps the I think the point, one of the points, especially going back to that varieties of capitalism argument, I think one of the interesting one of the things that we're trying to say is what's interesting is well, even if it is still austerity and even if it is still neo, neoliberal capitalism, still the interesting thing is well, what types of uh, opposition are we seeing? Because they're obviously the 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 seeds for uh, subsequent forms of opposition that we might expect and might want to work with in the future. So it's kind of sort of dodging the question, I think, of success, although obviously we're more happy when success happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in a sense trying to sort of assess um, how we can incubate, generate um, the conditions of possibility for the kinds of success which those more judgmental questions presuppose, right? I mean, because they're not just going to come out of nowhere. And the uh, and, and and the moment or the event where that success comes is is never uh, possible to anticipate in advance. So the you're trying to control the thing you can control. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth? No, that's exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You're listening to Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. We're joined today by David Bailey of the University of Birmingham, discussing his forthcoming book, Protest Movements and Parties of the Left. Uh, David, I've had a chance now, luckily enough, to, to have a, a sort of an advanced proof of the book and, and I've been reading it. And I have to say, I, I think the audience of this show is going to find the book uh, very accessible, but also, I think more importantly, timely. Um, recently, there's been kind of this resurgence of the left uh, here in America anyway. And uh, for better or for worse, Perhaps we could have predicted this, but um, it's been accompanied by a fairly marked degree of intra-left intra debate. Um, one refreshing aspect of your book in this sense, I think, is how you try to remind us that the debates today are not really new. Um, you, in the book, I think, sort of offer a way to help us trace the origins of some of these debates back to Debates that took place long ago in the context of the first international, which was the anarchist versus Marxist debate, or the second international, which was the reform versus revolution debate. Now, one of the key criteria you use to assess the history of left strategy in your book is disruption. So in that sense, then, whether it's the Bolshevik revolution or the Spanish civil war that you're discussing, struggle of left political parties in post-war Europe, for example, or even the American civil rights movement. The point for you consistently is to try to assess the extent to which these movements were actually able to disrupt and create alternative modes of life. From your research on the book, I'm just curious though, what were your favorite examples of successful anti-capitalist disruption? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It is, um, I have loads of them. <laughs> it's a good that's a good question. It's almost impossible to answer though, because um, I'm trying to get you off the fence. Because well, yeah, but the point, I suppose, yeah, the point, yeah, that's a good point as well. Um, we can perhaps talk about that as well. Why sometimes it seems like I'm on the fence, but um, it's so difficult to answer because it's sort of to pick one would be sort of to denying to be denying the uh, the worth or merit of those that I, I didn't pick. But I suppose um, what were the most disruptive? Yeah. Um, I suppose the thing you know, that. I, Historically, I suppose it's difficult to avoid sort of romanticizing for the right reasons as the, the anarchists during in the in Catalonia during the Spanish Civil War. But I think I think most 
most of kind of those people with a kind of horizontalist anarchist type leanings in their in their, in their politics today are rightly um, rightly value the experiences of the, the Spanish anarchists and the, or actually anarchist syndicalists or anarchist syndicalists plus syndicalists if you treat them that way with the CNT by because I think I think they're the reason it's so important is because they're for the perhaps one of the only times we can see um, a mass movement, so a movement that's able to exist outside of what's more often perhaps for those kind of politics considered uh, uh, sort of more small groups. So it's a mass movement and it's able to do, for however limited a period, it's able to do a number of the things that we're constantly told we're not able to do. So to live outside of uh, capital and the state for a prolonged period of, t of time mm -hmm. without society essentially crumbling and becoming uh, 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 um, completely disorganized and, and, uh, and collapsing. So I suppose that's the kind of interesting and inspiring thing about the experience of Spain from kind of 1930, or Catalonia from 1936 to 1937, that you have then sort of self-organizing mass society run along relatively democratic lines without a uh, state imposing order for, for much of that time and um, and kind of with glimpses of what a, tra a mass transition might look like in that the, the CNT was able to represent something like the democratic control of production at the time. So I suppose in that sense it's difficult not to sort of say that the, the, the Spanish experience of the Catalan Spanish uh, anarchist was one of the most impressive but then obviously, like I'm saying, it's also not that we want to uh, deny the importance of other experiences. So when, in the book, when I talk about the Russian Revolution, especially the kind of initial part of it, the February Revolution, what we're seeing, it seems to me, in the historical accounts is pretty much the entirety of Peter's, St. Petersburg's working class coming out yeah. on strike together, mm -hmm. demonstrating together within the city, and that having a massive disruptive effect in that basically the uh, authority or the government's authority and the military simply aren't able to uh, retain control. But then again, it doesn't collapse into a total uh, chaos. It, it becomes a kind of relatively structured form of social mobilization and social opposition. So again, that's that's uh, pretty impressive, is a kind of understatement, I guess. And going through some of the other ones, I, yeah. I guess I find quite inspiring the um, sort of, for different reasons, uh, the Fannie Lou Hamer speech at the uh, Democrat, Democratic uh, National Convention in 1964, I think it was, where she turns up at the um, Democratic Party's convention representing the what's called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Yeah. To just basically publicly state, you know, the Democratic Party claims to represent us, but it won't even allow uh, black people from the U.S. South to register to or won't even support their attempts to uh, register to vote and to participate in the, uh, the political system of the United States. So that kind of bravery, I guess, in terms of willingness to, to sort of stand up and speak truth to power, that kind of thing is, 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 is impressive. And then I suppose coming more kind of recently, I, then I'm, I guess what I'm interested in is what type of things are happening in, in our contemporary context. And two struggles, I think, are perhaps uh, of that are particularly impressive at the moment are attempts to, I guess, attempts to rejuvenate the trade union movement 
largely through attempts to bring in, I guess, uh, sort of lessons from more sort of social movement oriented strategies. So what mm-hmm. people tend to call sort of independent trade union or social movement unionism, although that's, that's perhaps less what they use now, more kind of independent unions strategies, I guess, is what people talk about. So the United Voices of the World is really impressive at the moment in London, organising especially uh, ethnic minority and migrant workers who are typically on low pay, normally organising for the living wage. So the LSE cleaners um, campaign was really impressive. Not only did they manage to get the commitment for the living wage, but they also managed to get brought back in-house through really kind of vibrant um, and disruptive uh, uh, strategy of organising cleaners that the established trade unions weren't able to uh, weren't able to deal with in terms of being able to represent them or to use the more kind of established methods of trade union organising. And the Racy Living Wage campaign, which um, I've mentioned, I think, briefly in the book as well, um, is also a kind of, which is more kind of represented by an established trade union, BECTU, but also using similar methods of um, uh, disrupting the activity of the, in this case, cinema chain, Picture House, by having constant kind of pickets, publicity campaigns, and so on, to for over a year now to try to um, achieve again the living, the London living wage. This case, in this case, which would be a major a major gain because again it's for people who would typically expect to be low paid uh, cinema workers, low paid flexible employment, um, and groups of people, the so called precariat, who are typically viewed as unable to be organised within trade unions. So I think that's also. Uh, they're also kind of interesting and important uh, struggles that we're talking about more immediately in the uh, contemporary context. Maybe we can um, talk about method for a minute. Um, I thought one of the really interesting parts of your introductory essay in the book was when you talk about the difference between tracing and mapping. And um, it's an idea you get from Deleuze and Guattari, who you were mentioning earlier on. Um, Tracing is an effort to sort of represent precisely the object under analysis. And here, of course, it's social movements. Um, Whereas mapping seems to be more about um, not trying to so much represent exactly what you're studying, but putting knowledge to work in a practical sense. And I'm just wondering if you could flesh out this distinction a little bit for us Mm -hmm. and say why it's important for the book um, if I'm interpreting you correctly, what does it mean to put knowledge to work practically for the left? Yeah, I think part of the um, part of the way I got into that introduction was starting to think about um, if we're going to do work about left parties and protest movements, then what what should our and by our I mean I guess. Uh, uh, academics who are paid to do this, this kind of work. What should and could our input be to those left parties and protest movements? And partly, I guess, I started to feel that it was slightly problematic, this notion that a kind of academic sort of contributes towards uh, towards struggle through uh, a sort of role as a, uh, as a sort of endorser and promoter of... Um, different types of left parties and protest movements. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's partly because what I'm trying to deal with is sort of some of the strategic questions that those parties and movements face. 
And what I sort of say at the beginning is, is, is um, what, that it's, it's something slightly problematic because obviously there's a decision to be made about what strategic option should uh, parties and movements adopt. And I'm not entirely convinced that it's the role of the academic to really in, engage in that debate because there's sort of something privileged about the academic position in, the, in that sort of by its very nature, there's a sort of standing back and observing and then saying, well, you know, I ordain that this is the correct way that a, a, a party or a protest movement should behave. And I think there's, there's two things, there's two potential routes that that can go down. One is that, you know, you basically tell everyone this is, uh, this is um, the way that parties and protest movements should act. <clears throat> which um, I would have thought is likely to sort of reflect the institution within which you're based. So in other words, that the university will either somehow have a sort of relatively nuanced but nevertheless selective process whereby certain types of experts are privileged over other types of experts. And so you would sort of expect that to have kind of conservative implications because of simply the nature of the institution. Or that you've sort of allowed to promote rad some so-called radical strategies, but that by doing so you sort of become a, um, a kind of token radical that legitimates the conservative nature of the university, if you see what I mean. So you either reflect mm -hmm. the conservative bias of the, of the university, or even if you don't, you sort of reinforce it by legitimating it by sort of being a, a, uh, a, token, a, a token that uh, highlights the pluralism when it's not really pluralism that exists. So that's kind of the sort of problem that is that struck me as uh, the, the starting point of trying to study left parties and protest movements. And the point I'm trying to make with the use of Deleuze is that I think Deleuze and Guattari are sort of um, making similar claims, or rather, perhaps I'm having read Deleuze, I then that's then fed into my thoughts about how to uh, study left parties and protest movements. And part of that, what they're, what Deleuze and Guattari are saying is that representation in itself is always problematic, that you, there is no representation um, because there's always some kind of difference between the act of the, the, the object being represented and the, and the speech or, or, or articulation that's seeking to rep represent the object. So there's always a difference. So you always have a kind of gap between what's being represented and the act of representing it. And that therefore, um, trying to deny that gap is itself problematic. And so, so they then, I think, go through a kind of series of discussions about well, how then, if that's the case, then what should you, what should, what could we try to do? If, if denying the, uh, the impossibility of representation is itself a problematic act, then what can we do to try to co connect with uh, social reality? And I think that's probably the point. That it's not that we're trying to represent it; it's that we're trying to connect with it in some way. Obviously, we're, that the point is that the act of representation is part of social reality as well. Yeah. So tracing is um, the attempt to uh, represent social reality as a kind of one-to-one -one relationship. So we sort of say this is what social reality looks like. Mapping, the point I think that Deleuze and Guattari are trying to make is that mapping is represented, is recognizing that the act of representation is inherently problematic and not likely to work. And therefore what they do instead is think about it in terms of uh, trying to form a connection with reality, to intervene in reality, and, to dis and then what I say is also to try to disrupt that re social reality. And the reason that you would want to disrupt it is that 
necessarily that representation anyway is a form of difference and a form of disruption. So you might as well amplify and contribute towards that in a sort of um, in an attempt to enable difference to flourish or, or or simply for humans to flourish, I guess would be one way of thinking of it. Yeah. Okay, so then in terms of thinking what does that mean for uh, putting practical knowledge to work for the left, I think the point is that it should not be about an attempt to as accurately as possible represent episodes of the left, but rather to pick out from a kind of history of the left and left parties and protest movements and amplify those instances which appear to offer the most uh, encouragement for more disruptive uh, episodes mm. in the present. So I suppose that would be the way that I would see it. It's, the, it's those instances that um, that offer inspiration and in, and identify opportunities for uh, disruption that we should be most interested in, and that could perhaps be kind of one of the goals of the book, I suppose, to sort of highlight those. Following on from that, David, I think one theme that sort of emerges um, in the text, and I I actually don't know if this is necessarily intentional on your part or not, but. I, I suppose I'm seeing it as the, the necessity of a certain attitude of ambivalence in our analysis. Um, we get bogged down, perhaps, when we focus too much on questions of who the enemy is or drift into strict binaries about whether we should or shouldn't collaborate with the state or its institutions, the parliamentary system, the army, the police, etc. I mean, yeah, uh, historically, these institutions have often betrayed us. And in your book, I think you don't hold back on the failures of, say, the October Revolution or uh, anarchist collaboration in Spain with the Central Committee. Uh, indeed, sometimes in your book, I'm almost hearing you saying as it's as if the left movements have a tendency to betray themselves. But nevertheless, it does seem that the spirit of your analysis is to try to look at those historical moments where leftist movements have been able to think creatively and to seize on the practical opportunities available to them. Am I correct in hearing you say that we should have this ambivalent attitude and that the past doesn't necessarily preordain the, the present? Yeah, I think so. I think well, I'm definitely saying we need that we need to move away from the notion that we certainly know what is the correct strategy because it seems to me that the, one of the key dilemma, and again, what I talk about in the introduction, the key dilemma, it seems, is this, is this idea of a, uh, an opposition between what I talk, talk about as, margin, on the one hand, marginality. So if we're too radical, we get marginalized. Yeah. And on the other hand, a kind of co-optation, that if we're not radical enough, we kind of compromise and we get co-opted and sucked back into the prevailing mechanisms of, 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 a, of a, 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 an unequal society. And it seems that basically that's if that's the sort of basis for most of these debates. That on the one hand, people are saying, "Well, you know, you've sold out the movement," and on the other hand, you've got people who who are accused of doing that, who are saying, "Well, you know, at least we're, I'm working with the system and I'm producing some kind of concrete change, mm -hmm. even if I compromise to achieve that." And it seems that really all the way through that, there's there there isn't, hasn't really been any <coughs> major signs that you can actually escape that dilemma. So if that's the case, I think I'm saying, then probably we'd need to move away from the idea that we know which of those sides we should back, which is partly difficult because 
obviously everybody has a position within that debate and tends to tends to want to take a view. Yeah. But I guess partly what I'm saying is it does seem to be that that dilemma is kind of intractable. And maybe what we should be doing is thinking about, like we talk about innovate, innovative methods, creative methods, and getting less bogged down in that, those kind of debates. So I'm not sure if I'm saying that the past doesn't necessarily uh, help us to understand the future, but certainly the, um, the lessons from the past indicate that it, it's difficult to get beyond this kind of debate of so-called marginality versus co-optation. Maybe we can um, take some of these points then and start to think about them in relation to sort of today's questions. Um, now, your book already kind of goes there because it concludes with chapters both on contemporary anti-austerity movements, but also, I think, very interestingly, on the prospect of what you refer to as the new populist left, um, both in its kind of origins uh, out of the Latin American context, but also then more recently in Europe with the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, etc. Um, you might throw Bernie Sanders in there, I don't know. But a, a key term for you as you tell the story of this unexpected resurgence of the radical populist left in Europe is Pasakification. And, you know, again, just sort of going back to this question of collaboration, what's too much collaboration, what's too much, little, what's too little collaboration. I, I, I imagine audience members might not be familiar with the term or the story of PASOK. So, so maybe let's start there. What is, what is the role of PASOK in your chapter on these parties? Why is it important to understand them to grasp the connection between the fall of contemporary progressive parties in Europe and these newly revitalized radical leftist parties. Like a pasakification. Okay, so the point is um, that um, obviously around between sort of 2011 and 2015 in Greece, the major social democratic party, PASOK, yep. basically experienced a, a total collapse in its electoral support and a, uh, and a massive switch in support from PASOK to uh, Syriza. So the PASOK went from around about between sort of 30 to 40 percent of the share of the vote uh, pre-2009 to really almost completely being abandoned now and really it's being expected to receive somewhere around 5 percent of the vote. So this really was kind of seen as an unprecedented move that a social democrat, a major social democratic party of the centre left, would completely collapse, and that that collapse was, uh, is understood by virtually everyone as a result of the fact that they essentially were complicit in the wave of austerity measures that were imposed on the country by so-called troika, and as a result of the the fallout of the eurozone crisis. So it was seen as a kind of an indication that if the mainstream centre-left social democratic parties couldn't come up with something that wasn't simply uh, uh, maintaining austerity, then um, they they would face the prospects of being outflanked by a party of the left and seeing their and or seeing their electorate uh, completely abandon them, which is kind of and so the idea of pasokification is that this problem, this experience from the social democratic, the social democratic left in Greece could be repeated uh, outside of Greece, right. and I guess basically that's that's sort of what happened in 
especially in the case of uh, France, where we saw the total collapse of the yes. parties, East, and in the case of Holland, where we've also seen the Dutch PVDA, um, their electoral support will pretty much uh, collapse as well. So there is the, sort the of Irish a, Labour Party is the exact same phenomenon, no? Uh, well, there's never been quite such a, there's never been a major centre left in Ireland, has there? Sure, so, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's of course. It, they, were, they were a lower starting point. So, so I suppose, but in that sense, but in that sense, yeah, same same kind of process is going on. Yeah. So, um, so that's one sort of it. But there is a sort of second interpretation of pass occupation as well, which is that um, that the new radical left parties might become like the old social democratic parties. So it was one type of pacification is that all the other social democratic parties experience the same problem as PASOK has experienced. But another one is that the process whereby Syriza has sort of become increasingly like PASOK, right. whereby the, it's got the same electoral base, and it's now, obviously, since uh, 2015, also undergone this kind of typical social democratic U-turn, whereby once you get into office, you basically say, oh, sorry, it turns out I can't do all of the social reforms that we promised you to get elected, and we're going to have to just accept austerity after all. But there seemed, that also seemed to happen to Syriza. So there's a kind of second meaning of pass occupation, I think, as well, which is that the radical left parties become uh, like pass up or like the mainstream social democratic parties once they get into office. But I suppose in both cases, you're right, the, 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 um, the, the, the more general point is to think about, well, what's going to happen to the centre-left parties, given that they don't seem to have anything to offer in terms of the rejuvenation of their project, mm-hmm. and to this kind of new introduction of new left parties like Podemos, like Syriza, uh, like perhaps the Jeremy Corbyn or Corbynite version of the Labour Party, that that they don't seem, uh, arguably, really to have resolved the problems that social democratic parties faced in the first place, which was that in order to get elected, you have to you have to make significant compromises, and that they those compromises uh, quite often tend to produce outcomes that they, that weren't promised beforehand or and weren't desired beforehand either. And so whether they I guess there's a question as to whether they these kind of newer left parties really have dealt with that issue and if if not then is it going to lead to more disappointment and if it's leading to more disappointment then what's going to happen after that but i suppose the analysis still is to try to look at things um in that sort of method again the the idea uh or through the perspective of that method again that tries to um tries to look at the um you know the way the ways we can map the the best forms of practical knowledge that we're going to leverage us to um, to the kind of power that we want. Um, exactly. One of the well, things, so, I mean, sorry, sorry, sorry you, could, you could just write off Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, and just yeah. say, "Well, you know, it's the Labour Party again. Why would we do all this kind of thing again?" But that also, I sort of put, we sort of put in the book that that also seems problematic because there is something innovative and creative about the way in which the Labour Party has been almost overnight transformed into a different type of political party. So I think it's problematic also just to simply say, well, you know, here we go again with a social democratic strategy that will lead to compromise and and defeat. So it's, yeah. This isn't a a topic that's in your book that I have seen anyway, but, um, you know, to to what extent... um, 
Do you think it's also important to be critical of these lessons, uh, you know, that we draw on? You know, like I think, for example, your commentary on the sort of termination of the Russian Revolution's moment, you know, it, uh, it, the, Rus the Russian Revolution can't just be looked at optimistically. It would also have to include a sort of a, a reflection on the failures. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of trying to trying to be optimistic. So no, I understand that. I just, yeah, I tend to tend to dwell less on the failures. I suppose partly we know we sort of know what they are anyway. So I guess part of my argument is that it's more interesting to think about uh, what what forms of disruption can we do, and to try to do them better. But there is a sort of section in the conclusion where I say, well, you know, we do we can't just only be optimistic. We do need to be serious about the prospect about the fact that most of these episodes have faced serious and quite often um, uh, fundamental problems. I wanted to ask you that question, David, because um, it sort of leads me into something I'm actually keen to ask you, which is your thoughts on uh, the emergence in the United States right now of the so-called alt-right or the mm -hmm. neo-Nazis. Um, Now, obviously, we've had events recently in Charlottesville, um, in Carolina, where where um, you know some pretty horrific scenes of violence were were um, were on display. Um, just prior to that event, there was a there was a debate in um, a, a, a website called In These Times with contributions by Natasha Leonard and also Nathan Robinson. And Leonard, on the one hand, was putting forward the idea that, you know, fascism is a real and serious threat and that there's no real basis for engaging in any kind of debate with these people. The only language they understand is violence. And so they must be challenged by, an, by, by, by getting everyone on the left, you know, to really just turn out on the streets to show up in overwhelmingly superior numbers in the public spaces and literally just shout them down, you know, shut them down. Mm. Nathan Robinson, on the other hand, responds and seems to come from a, a quite a different perspective. And he argues that in an American context, at least, while the alt-right might have a certain presence online, for example, actual fascists themselves remain fairly obscure. Um, and even in Charlottesville, you know, I'm thinking through his arguments here, you know, maybe 500, maybe 750 actual fascists showed up um, in this march. You know, they were outnumbered by the protesters and by the police. Um, and this, of course, being their premier major uh, event, you know, that they were, that you know, that they were going to put their best foot forward. Um, you know, if this is the best they can do, then maybe, maybe the fascists aren't as big of a threat as we think. Um, and so, you know, not sort of, um, to dismiss the violence that occurred, but it is to sort of ask the question as to whether in their militant agitation, and again, this is going back to the, the question of to what extent we are also under an obligation to be critical of the left as well, um, sure. that these Antifa movements are actually perhaps elevating the fascists to a status that is actually quite disproportionate to their actual numbers. I'm just wondering, sort of like, if I'm trying to take the spirit of your book and mm. I'm trying to look at this as seeing, like, what's positive here? Um, 
it's hard to it's hard to know how to apply that analysis. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm not sure that if, if we can take a direct lesson from the book, but I suppose what I suppose the way that I would think about it is in terms of why do these sort of reactionary views happen, and why do they become widespread and have significant influence? Because obviously, if we're talking about a alt right on the street, we might be talking about few hundred people, but also at the same time, obviously, there, Trump did get elected, and he did sort of use quite similar sort of arguments and rhetoric as that the alt-right uh, endorse. So there is a sort of tendency, it seems to me, for sort of reactionary views to proliferate, and that we can connect that to some of the uh, some of the tendencies and processes that constitute capitalism. So I suppose in that sense, I would say in terms of well, how how do how are we trying to disrupt that tendency for capitalism to generate reactionary ideas? So in that sense, I, I'm not sure that I would really view it as a sort of endorsing, as a sort of um, elevating the status of the, the the sort of far right, because partly because the ideas of the far right seem to have really kind of got a grip at the moment. So there is a kind of need to directly challenge that, and partly because what the, that this kind of the kind of mobilization of the alt right seems to represent is a, an attempt to make it acceptable to 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 express reactionary and racist um, views and so it seems to me that to disrupt that to say well actually there's a much bigger majority of people who think that it's not acceptable to publicly express those kind of ideas is an act of disruption and therefore something to be sort of welcomed so I guess that's perhaps how I would how I would uh, sort of see how how to respond to that. But I, oh, I agree, it's a difficult one. Uh, how, what do you think about it? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about um, this uh, interview that uh, appeared in American Prospect about a week and a half ago or so with uh, with Steve Bannon, who obviously is <coughs> formerly a member of Trump's White House, and you know, now having sort of stepped. Are, are in the moment where he was about to step out of the White House. I think he probably saw the writing on the wall. Um, he opened up in this, you know, fairly progressive publication, American Prospect, and basically sort of revealed that the strategy here, the game plan here, uh, as he saw it with the alt-right. Now, he's had some fairly derogatory views of the alt-right. I think he sort of thought of them as idiots. But the he thought of them, I think, as useful idiots who could bog the left down in a kind of an outrage politics um, or maybe even an identity politics um, and thereby sort of vacate the field of economic populism for Trump to come along and become kind of the dominant voice. So, um, you know, people like Leonard in the... Um, debate I mentioned before in uh, in these times argue that, you know, the alt-right have no real argument, that they just rely on emotions. And I think, you know, that might be so, but it's perhaps unwise in the same breath to forget that Trump got a lot of votes in the election and that there's a lot of people out there who, you know, are potentially, shall we say, Milo curious. They're not alt-right, but they're definitely sort of... Um, maybe centrist voters or non-aligned voters who are upset about the what they perceive as economic corruption and the way in which elites have been sort of um, let off scot-free 
since 2008 in terms of their record of economic management. So these people aren't stupid. They hear Trump making some not entirely unreasonable points about the dim record of the mainstream political class in the U.S. And so in the aftermath of Charlottesville, I think certainly it looks like the far-right groups have kind of gone on the run. They've certainly cancelled a lot of their events over the country. Last weekend in Berkeley, the Antifa groups protested anyway, even though the the alt-right had actually cancelled their appearance. And I'm just wondering, is there a risk that this can sort of spill over to a kind of um, um, a left hysteria over fascism, Confederate statues, this kind of thing? Um, And maybe it's going to start to make us look like we have confused priorities right now because we're not really um, thinking through... uh, the strategic question of how we gain support um, from the vast majority of American voters. Mm. Yeah, it's a difficult one. It's, um, but I'm not sure how I'm not sure how we make the distinction between the kind of economic populism and uh, the sort of far right agenda, because it seems that. Trump is kind of doing both at the same time, isn't he? He's with this recent... Well, some uh, might say, to, to, you know, to, to, to sort of put it in a nutshell, and you can just tell me if you think this is a crazy idea or not, but, I mean, is he going to outflank the left on the left economically, so to speak, like our, at least in terms of economic populist ideas, right? That, that, that traditionally... Um, these notions of generating prosperity for middle America are seen to, you know, these are, this, this has been a kind of a a bread and butter territory for the left in terms of um, speaking for the virtues of unionization, uh, collective bargaining. Um, Trump has had some support from unions and uh, by building a wall, He's trying to sort of speak to that constituency using a very different politics, to be sure, um, but still trying to tap into their sense of economic fairness and their uh, concern to build a better economic future for themselves. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just skeptical that you can do that at the same time as having this kind of very exclusive racialized agenda that's attached to it. Mm. you I think it's difficult for um, for Trump to speak to, I suppose, what we call the kind of white working class. The sort of, I guess, the would be the sort of way of understanding that. I think that's difficult to do because because it's so racialized, especially in a country like the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In so, I mean, I suppose I suppose it's a similar thing to the kind of Brexit debate in the UK, isn't it? Which is mm-hmm. sort of saying, doesn't Brexit appeal to an excluded? section of the working class and therefore it's going to crowd out um crowd out the labor party's ability to win back working class voters yeah in the case of brexit i guess i guess the way that that's been avoided in part was almost to be sort of ambiguous about brexit and instead to focus on a kind of austerity anti-austerity agenda so i mean if a, a sort of repeat of the uh the last u.s election saw Sanders being the Democrat candidate again, it would seem to me that that would be a uh, a more successful attempt to rejuvenate a connection with um, with the kind of working class 
uh, electorate in that it wouldn't necessarily wouldn't have that kind of racial division running through it in terms of who it's trying to appeal to you see what i mean so we, I don't right think we- but on the other hand i mean when i i saw a poll last thursday suggesting that only 40 percent of african americans believe that confederate statues should actually be taken down um and then, you know, I'm also thinking about the fact that at Berkeley last weekend, you know, the, the alt-right cancelled their protest and mm-hmm. um, and effectively didn't show up. And, and yet at the Antifa rally that took place, regardless, uh, we saw footage of black bloc elements uh, beating up um, an alt-right guy with a with a flagpole on campus. You know, so it's it's like, are we... Uh, perhaps um, over focusing on the identity aspects of the the Trump moment. Um, you know, Bannon clearly saying in his interview that this is part of a strategy to 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 bog the left down in these kinds of feelings, like it to, basically to troll. I mean, if you if you're familiar with the the the, the, the internet lingo these days, right? To yeah. troll the left into expressing such outrage on the question of identity politics that, um, you know, it, it, uh, it sort of starts to, to go beyond what even African Americans themselves want in terms of taking down these Confederate Confederate statues to start using violence against, um, the alt right and run the risk of creating a false equivalency with genocidal Nazis, right? So, you know, obviously there is no equivalency between the the left and the and, and the, the neo-Nazis, but there's a danger, I think, that we are going to let ourselves be trolled into um, acting in such a way that in the mind of the majority of voters, this idea that um, the Antifa are somehow actually an alt-left you know, becomes persuasive. Mm. I just feel yeah, that, that could be challenging. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, Good. I suppose, <laughs> I suppose what um, the way that I would view it, if trying to think through the arguments from the book to this to the kind of context that you're yeah, setting out, is to sort of think of again to go back to this question. Well, you know, what is capitalism? Cap- that capitalism, in part, is constituted by those kind of uh, a propagation of racial divisions and the using of those racial divisions to maintain sort of structures of inequality and domination. Mm. And so the, the ability to mobilize in a disruptive way to prevent and seek to, pro- and, and to a certain extent, prohibit the expression of, um, of racist language and racist attacks is sort of something to be heralded. I'm not, I'm not. I'm just not sure that I, that I that I fully buy the idea that that ends up almost kind of help helping to create this polar. Because in a way, with the Deleuze start as a starting point, you I could sort of see the argument because it's about rejecting binaries away in a way, isn't it? By by maintaining the binary of are you a racist or not a racist, you sort of amplify on both sides. But I I I I, I sort of get the sense that. Capitalism left to its own devices would be more racist than capitalism that sort of had its uh, constant mobilization of anti-racist 
protest and opposition. Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. So I, in that sense, I'm sort of I'm less concerned. I mean, going back to the kind of dile- intractable, intractable dilemmas, probably you're right to a certain extent, obviously, like the whole example of Milo and his books suddenly became famous, although actually then it became unfamous because they we nearly lost it, but we did actually lose sure. the publisher in the end. So, I mean, partly there is that process, I suppose, but I guess, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that we, if we have to choose between the risk of elevating and the promise of disrupting, and probably we do have to choose, and we're not necessarily going to avoid the pitfalls of the other, whichever one we choose, that we probably should go for the disruption option. So I suppose I'm sort of saying mm. it's, good, it's good that we can rely on some kind of mobilization, even if it does bring some, some consequences in terms of perhaps a distraction from more important or more, not necessarily important, but more uh, broader goals, or if it has the effect of, of galvanizing the far right as well. Probably, I guess what I'm saying is that's going to those problems exist anyway, and it's better that we do try to mobilise rather than worry about the consequences of that mobilisation. I suppose is sort of what the argument of the book is trying to say, without really thinking through it fully. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you there. Um, I suppose um, the the echoes in my mind from your book were the the, the moments where you know, the successes of the Spanish Civil War, the successes, the successful aspects of the Bolshevik Revolution, and the tendency then at a certain point to sort of make a critical mistake by perhaps looking at, uh, or beginning to look at our uh, our goals in terms of a by any means necessary kind of um, um, logic, right? That That we start to start to, to, to put um, some kind of logic of power ahead of an, uh, a need to uh, meet the people where they are? But I think, um, I mean, partly, well, I think part, one thing I'd say is, it, I guess I'm more positive about the Russian Revolution than the Bolshevik part of it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, the, in ter- but I suppose in terms of thinking, so it seems that part of your argument is to say, well, you know, by, by winning the fight against the old right, we might lose the fight against Trump. I think it's sort of perhaps one way of thinking about the question. But then I suppose what I'm, what, we, what I sort of try to say in the yeah. book is that um, possibly we're not going to win the major battle of uh, of instating a government that we're entirely happy with. And maybe we're going to have to settle for instances where we can disrupt the things that we can disrupt and then to work from that as a platform. So I suppose in that sense... Um, the possibility of uh, a sort of anti-alt-right movement scuppering the electoral prospects of a of a sort of rejuvenated democratic party or something like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily be the thing that I'd be worried about. Perhaps we'll end it here, David. Um, okay. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate your book. I'm super excited about it uh, coming out and I want to sort of commend it to people as a a text they can refer to with their students, Um, especially I think it'd be a great primer for, because it's written in such an accessible manner, uh, it's not just a history of the highlight moments of left struggle, but it's it's a really fair and balanced assessment of the different modalities of, of left strategy. Um, what works historically 
what the pitfalls are, what the risks are along the way. And um, I, I just think it, it can occasion such a productive conversation in the classroom. Um, I think people are going to be turning to this text and uh, I, I think you're going to be really successful with it. Well, that's very nice of you to say, and it is aimed at a sort of student audience and that it comes out of a module that I've been teaching for the last eight years at Birmingham, so I'm very, very pleased that you said that. But also, I mean, I should be thanking you, not the other way around, because it's really, uh, it's really uh, very much appreciated that you've taken the time to, to, well, obviously read the book and also to give me a chance to talk about it, so I'm really glad and grateful for that. Thanks, David. And um, it's good to have you on today, not just to talk about the book, but also to engage in the important conversation of, of where we are uh, today uh, with this history behind us of all these different possibilities, these different um, uh, modes of struggle um, to think about, uh, you know, ourselves as the inheritors of that legacy. You're very, very generous with your time. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. <laughs> we don't. I'm going to go and cook the dinner now. Good man. All right. And listen, don't don't beat the dog up too much. All right, <laughs> <laughs> <You're so... laughs> Thank you. Thanks, All right, mate. Talk to you. So I'll obviously separately to separately to what we're about to do. I'll do a, like a whole intro thing. Um, where yep. I tell people who you are and what the interview is about, and you know, so this is this is. I won't uh, lead into you here. I'm just going to start with the questions as written, and then we can see if they, you know, if we need to, if you, you know, depending on what you say back, we might get into a more organic flow or whatever. But mm-hmm. right, so <clears throat> welcome to the show, David. I'd like to start by talking with you about your forthcoming book. Um, oh, what the... Geez. Can you hear that dog? Yeah. Hear what is that? That's that... my dog. It just oh. started back. It does do that from time to time. There's two of them as well. It's a... Dear God in heaven. Yeah, they might, they might happen again, I'm afraid. All right. Well, we can... Um, I'm, I'm recording... They just have to be background noise if it's... You ever watch that video of the um, the guy being interviewed by CNN or something, <laughs> and his kids run into the room? You ever see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he got in big trouble about it because, like, I, I everyone was like, "Is it a housekeeper? Is it his wife?" Yeah, of course. He batted his he batted the child away and then <laughs> scoured his wife for indirect payment. Hilarious. Turns out he was actually kind of a sound bloke afterwards. Anyway, right. So I'm not David, sure about that. I, I don't know about. Huh? He's a Republican. Was he? Mm. Oh well, then fuck him. <laughs> okay. Um, 